This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Hal Hester. Good to have you this morning. Glad that you could join us. We are continuing in our series in the Gospel of John this morning. Very excited to uh, share this morning with you. You know, as you may have noticed on the screen, and as it would imply, that a major theme in the Gospel of John is this whole idea of eternal life. Now, it, throughout uh, this Gospel, it, we see again and again this phrase, eternal life, or sometimes the phrase, abundant life. But there's also kind of a shorthand that takes place uh, in the writing of John, uh, not only here, but in other of his writings, but specifically in the Gospel of John, where he refrains from the word bios, which is the Greek word for biological life, from which we get our word biology, uh, and instead uh, uses uh, words like sozo uh, and zoe, which are referring to a quality of life, to a way of ex existing and experiencing the presence of God. It is, instead of being just a matter of fact that life is, it's an expectation of God at work in His world, and so that throughout the Gospel of John, the expectation is that eternal life is not something that is afar off, something that we get to in the sweet by and by, but that as we are in relationship with God, that eternal life invades the space that we're in now and is lived out through us, expressed through us, so that this quality of life, of abundant life or a, uh, eternal life, uh, is, is shared to anyone who comes in contact with us, that they begin to experience the kingdom of God, as it were, the life eternal by coming into contact with us as expressions of that life. So those words, the word life, uh, throughout the text, you could literally just go through your Bible. If you don't like to write in your Bible, that's okay. You might want to just print it off or whatever. And then you could go through with a highlighter and you could literally highlight that word life over and over again throughout the text. And what you would find simply by context is that the, the impression, as you do that, you would see that how he is communicating, not just a sense of existing, not a sense of biological life, but he's talking about what the quality of life should be. Now today, as we're looking uh, at these passages, we're in, in chapter 2, and we're looking at Jesus' cleansing of the temple uh, at the time of the Passover. Now, in particular, in this event, it occurs in a little bit different order. If you look at the other Gospels, uh, we know from history and we know from the other Gospels that those events actually occurred in the last uh, weeks of Jesus' life, just right there at the very end, uh, leading up to uh, the events of His crucifixion. Um, but uh, here in John, John is kind of turned upside down, uh, just like Mark was written thematically and going from a, a kind of building up, revealing a secret, uh, unveiling a mystery. Uh, there is in John a front-loading of the gospel, the very direct communication about who Jesus is, so that here we are, just barely into chapter 2, uh, all of chapter 1, three different uh, events just pointing very directly to who Jesus is 
as the eternal God, that he is, in fact, Yahweh in the flesh. From looking at those verses in John chapter 1, talking about in the beginning, appealing to who God is in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, actually the name of the book Genesis getting its title from those first three words, in the beginning. That's what Genesis means, the beginning point. And so then uh, communicating also through the concept of the eternal word, the logos as being the eternal God, uh, the proclamation of John the Baptist preparing the way for Yahweh. There is a repeated declaration uh, throughout all of chapter 1. It continues into chapter 2 with an expectation that we're not having instead like chapter 1, the slow unveiling, but the front-loading of the information of who Jesus is, that He is the eternal God revealed in the flesh and the expectations thereof. So here, uh, He does something that is very different from the other Gospels, where they try to put it more chronologically toward the end. Even Mark does that, uh, even though Mark is uh, very thematic. Uh, here in the Gospel of John, He front-loads it. He puts it all the way in chapter 2 uh, at the very beginning of the Gospel as part of this uh, communication about who Jesus is, as we will talk about in just a few moments. Now, in terms of uh, what is happening there as we're reading, uh, because it is the time of the Passover, it's such a large event, I want you to think in terms of uh, that there are more people than normal in the temple area. In fact, there are many travelers who have come because this is one of those expectations, what they call a feast of obligation, an expectation that if you didn't come to temple any other time, uh, that you would make your way. And so you might have a long journey. Think in terms, in that day and age, a long journey could be as much as 10 miles. That's a full day's journey, especially if you are bringing animals to sacrifice. You've easily got a full day's journey at just 10 miles out. If you're even 20 or 30 miles out and you're bringing an animal to sacrifice, it becomes more complicated. If you are journeying even further, it could take weeks, even months. Uh, and in that, of course, it becomes complicated because... Part of the expectation in terms of Passover is that you would bring an animal that is sufficient for sacrifice, meaning without blemish, without any fault in it. In other words, it couldn't have any blemishes. Uh, and so oftentimes, just in terms of a long journey, uh, if you are making your way, camping out at night, dealing with other people on the highway, all those things, it becomes really complicated getting an animal that was healthy here to the temple in a timely manner and for that animal to still be healthy enough to offer a sacrifice. When that animal was brought into the temple, they would inspect it to decide if it was worthy of sacrifice. If it wasn't, you just made a journey with an animal that you're going to make that journey all the way back unless you're like having it for dinner. I don't know. Yeah, that's a possibility. But the reality is, is that you're not bringing it into the temple for sacrifice. And so it was customary uh, during this time uh, to help people out uh, by having some animals for sale that were uh, appropriate, that were sufficient for sacrifice. They were without blemish, without stain, without uh, any kind of uh, defect of any kind. That was normative to have available during that time. I want you to think also in terms of Jesus' own life experience living in Nazareth. 
And as a person in Nazareth, remember the, the whole thing, does, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, it was a significant journey to come to Jerusalem to worship. We see indications of when he was a child and making his way and even uh, the, him getting lost in the family you know, uh, a journey uh, because he was busy at the temple teaching the, the leaders uh, you know, and, and giving instruction. But uh, Jesus, as he would have grown up, would have seen where they would have had these animals there and offered uh, for worship. Another thing that was going on here in terms of the background before you and I read the story is the simple fact of the money changers. Now, that sounds really like as soon as we hear money changers, we start thinking really badly. Uh, but I, I want you to think in terms of that uh, the Jews had an understanding about their coinage in which no one's face would ever appear on a coin. Think about the typical American quarter with a picture of a president or uh, someone else. In Israel, that would have been considered idolatry. It would have never been permitted. The coinage of Rome, where most of our coinage is fashioned after, uh, after the, the coins of the Roman Empire, we take and put important people, especially like emperors, or we call them presidents, uh, on the face of that coin with an expectation uh, that they are being honored. Uh, but in particular, in Roman times, the phrase uh, uh, referencing them as deity was often on those coins. And so that coinage, when it says that Caesar is the son of God or something like that, they would not allow them to bring that into the temple grounds for the purpose of worship. So they would bring it in and there would be money changers. And those money changers did two things. One, they were exchanging your coinage for temple coinage that would not have idolatrous images or blasphemous sayings on those coins. The other part of it was that it was common in that day because coinage was made from gold and silver and other precious metals is that people would shave a little bit off, put in a jar and save it until they got enough to make another coin. And then they would pass that coin, that thinner coin, off to other people as being the full thing. And so when it came into the temple courtyard and you brought in your shekel, they wanted to make sure that a shekel actually weighed a shekel. And if it didn't, then you had to put more coins with it so that you brought in the whole tithe, the whole offering to God instead of bringing a deficient offering. And so those money changers served those two purposes. One, to get rid of the idolatrous coinage in exchange for temple uh, approved coinage. And secondly, also to make sure that you were bringing in an actual offering and not something deficient uh, that would not be honoring of God. So enter that situation. Jesus would have seen this all of his growing up. It was a fairly common practice and not viewed particularly as evil. That's really important as we walk into these series events so that we don't miss the point and get hyper-focused on the money exchange, get hyper-focused on those other things and miss the real message. Can I just, just say in the simplest way, that this is really all about uh, what was happening in terms of the worship, uh, not about the exchange of the animals or the exchange of the coins. There is something much bigger afoot here, and this has nothing to do with like kids you know, doing a bake sale to raise money for camp or something like that. Please don't miss the actual message by getting wrapped around the axle of cultural things today. All right, with that said... 
Uh, let's take a look at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set those to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in your lap, always my favorite translation because you're reading it. John 2, beginning in verse 13, we read these words. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon, and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my house a house of trade." His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So as I said, you know, historically we know these things took place uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. There are actually four Passover accounts uh, in the Gospels uh, during the life and ministry of Jesus before uh, his crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, so this one just appears very much kind of in, in a different order than all the others. And as I said, it has to do with thematically the way that he is uh, front-loading this message of Jesus as God in the flesh. Now, imperative to our understanding of the text in this way is that, you know, John is making Jesus' own body synonymous with that of the temple and and communicating something and we'll see even again in John chapter 4 where he will again equate this whole picture of Jesus body uh, you know being that of the temple in John chapter 4 much less direct as he's talking to the Samaritan woman and there she asks the question you Jews worship in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. Uh, we Samaritans worship here near Jacob's well on this mountain. Uh, and when this Messiah comes, I guess we'll find out what the true sense is. And Jesus tells her something very significant. He says, not neither here in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, uh, but those who will worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. He, he begins to change the whole movement away from the kind of brick and mortar or a significant place to this whole experience of encountering the living God who is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And so there is a whole different spirit in which he is beginning to communicate this message. We see that come again and again throughout the Gospel of John. 
but also if we look at some of other of John's writings, if we look at uh, even in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, somewhat not as strong, but certainly as we look at the apocalypse, what we call Revelation, there is this strong imagery of Jesus as the very temple of God, as the light of the nations. And so there, there is no need to go to the temple to worship. There is no need of the sun and the moon and the stars because instead Jesus is the light. He is the temple and that's where all the worship is due to his name. There is no more need for a sacrifice because he is the fulfillment fulfillment of those sacrifices. There is no more need for these other things because they're all fulfilled and satisfied in who Jesus is. That's the building theme that goes on and on throughout all of John's writings, but specifically here in the Gospel of John. Now, what's significant uh, as well is those very first sentence uh, of this that he feels the need to explain to these readers, even in the first century, what the Passover was. Listen to those words again. He explained it was the Passover of the Jews. He does not say Passover, referring to it as a Christian type of thing. He does not refer to Passover as something, a feast that Christians also kept. He makes it very distinct and uses the word, the Passover of the Jews, indicating what we know from church history, that the early church, by the end of the first century, had already become so independent from Judaism that Christians no longer practiced the Passover. And John felt the need specifically to indicate that what the Passover was. He, he felt the need to do some instruction there. Now, as I say that, please, 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 I do not want you to hear that in a way of, in any way, anti-Judaism or anti-the feast. Do not hear that. Do not hear in the way of instruction that those things do not have any value. But only keep in mind that at this point in Christian history, that already in the lifetime of John the Apostle, there was already a clear distinction between the practices of the Christians and the practice of the Jews. That the, that the Christians did not keep the Passover as a requirement or as a feast. Instead, what they saw is they saw Jesus as the Lamb of God, as having fulfilled that role fully and completely, not as something that needed to be passed over or ignored, not as something that wasn't important, no, as in a sense of fulfillment. Once something has come to pass, it does not need to be repeated again. Uh, one of the ways in which we like illustrate this is that like Jesus in uh, his sacrifice was one time for all time's sake. We do not need Jesus to be sacrificed again and again. Your sacrifices do not add up to, to anything in terms of redemption. There is only one sacrifice for all time. That's the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the Passover lamb. Therefore, I do not have to keep having one Passover lamb after another. That would say that he had not fulfilled the purpose of the Passover lamb. He has already fulfilled that. And so you and I don't look at that with disdain. We don't look at it as being less. We look at it as something as being complete. And we recognize that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. Same with the temple. The temple, we are no longer bound by brick and mortar. We no longer need to bring sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus 
is the ultimate fulfillment of those things, and now our worship is directed at Him, not in a place made with hands, not in a place that is derived from brick and mortar. So please, in that, do not hear in any way, please, 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 do not hear that Jesus is replacing them, hear that Jesus is fulfilling that. I want to be clear that the church does not replace the Jews. In fact, the word that we translate church in the New Testament, ecclesia, is the same word that's used in the Old Testament, uh, referring to the gathering of God's people uh, in the Old Testament. And so even the concept of synagogue and church and all, these are deeply intertwined all rooted in this same concept of the ecclesia of God, the people who are called out for his purposes and span the eternal existence of all the saints of God, both before and after Jesus' resurrection. What I am saying is this. The Apostle Paul uses an image in Romans of an olive tree. And he speaks of Israel as being the cultivated olive tree. And then those who come to Christ who are not Jews then become the wild olive branches that are grafted into the tree, but they join into that which already is. In other words, they do not replace it. They do not supplant it. They do not take over. They're just added in. And the message clearly over and over again is that having been added in, that we in no way are supplanting them. So here we have this picture, uh, uh, you know, uh, of these things as you and I are looking at this text and we keep in mind that the temple and the Passover fulfilled, that what is John wanting to convey to us even as he tells us these things? As I said before, Jesus three different times in the Gospels comes at Passover and partakes in these things. Before he becomes the Passover lamb, right? Before he is the fulfillment of the light of the world. And in that whole thing, there, this idea of selling, of them doing the exchanging of coins and the exchanging of animals or the selling of animals was going on all the other times that he had been there. There are not multiple times where he kicks them out. There are not multiple events. So, Clearly, there is not an indication that these events in and of themselves are the evil or the problem at hand. John instead takes us to Psalm 69. Now, I don't want you to turn to Psalm 69 right now because I'll lose you, you know, but I would like you to take some time and read Psalm 69 a little later. I, I promise you, if you turn there right now, you'll just like, you'll start reading it and you'll, next thing you know, you'll be like, what's he talking about? Um, so please wait. But in Psalm 69, the psalmist is writing, and he's writing about the gathering, about the assembly of God's people all together, and he is lamenting lukewarm faith. He is lamenting that people would come into worship and that they would not be zealous for the law of God. They would not be zealous for the heart of God. They would not be zealous for the worship of God. They would not be honoring him. And he's like watching people who are gathering and they're just kind of going to church. You, you ever done that before? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. But have you ever just done that where you're just kind of 
auditing the whole thing. You're not really engaged in the worship. You're not really engaged. And he's lamenting this. He's saying, how can, these, how can people come into the presence of God? How could they come to the temple and they not have this tremendous encounter with the living God, the eternal God? He's here. He's present. And he's lamenting this. And he says, you know, no matter what anybody else does, I will come because the zeal for the house of the Lord consumes me. He's talking about a passionate expression in his worship. The simple fact that John is quoting that, he's clearly not saying that there's no value in the temple. Can I just point that out to you? He's not saying that there's no value in it. But what he is concerned about is that people gathering to worship, and yet it is passionless. There is no experience. There is no encounter with the living God. And what he is attacking in that moment is what's happening there in the courtyard that is distracting from and taking honor away from God. Actually, one of the things that uh, is interesting, one of the secondary themes in the Gospel of John is the idea of glory or honor. The word doxa in the Greek, if you uh, were to go through in your New Testament, is most often translated in the English Bible as glory. The problem with that is that, you know, over millennia of being church and doing church, that sometimes we miss what it means. And so we actually have kind of developed this idea about glory as being some kind of like experience, like, oh, the glory of God. And we always see it as something that happens to us or something that we see or whatever, you know, they're shining, you know, like we got right there, we got imagery and uh, of people with halos and things like that, you know, but in the original language, glory and honor are the exact same word and mean the exact same thing. So if you were to say like, go through your Bible and just highlight in the gospel of John, Every time you see the word glory, if you just highlighted that, and then you read it afresh, what does it mean for me to honor God? What does worship look like that honors God? Not me chasing an experience of glory, but for me to bring in honor. What would it look like? If my whole life is called to be an expression of worship, how then would my life honor God? My speech, my activity, the way I treat other people, the way I conduct myself, the way I do my finances, all of it becomes the expression of worship, of glorifying God by the way in which I honor him. In, in this case, is, is he is coming into that temple ground, this place where they are gathering is crudely referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Its actual name is the court of the nations. It's one of the outer courts that people would pass through on their way to the inner court. But the understanding would have been that once you enter into the courts, you should enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Maybe you've heard that somewhere before or sang that somewhere before. 
We enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. There is an expectation that worship has already begun even before I get to the inner court. That I come through the outer courts and that the presence of God is made known there and the invitation then in the court of nations is the place for those who were afar off from God to be able to come and to worship the one true God, to worship Yahweh, to experience His presence, to know Him. Over and over, the message throughout the Old Testament was this, that Israel was not significant because of how great they were, they were significant because they were being used by God to communicate to the nations His goodness, His mercy, to honor Him and to invite other people to know Him. So they were called the city on the hill. So they were called the light to the nations. Even in the building of the temple, ground had been set aside distinctly for those that we would call in the New Testament the God-fearing Greek. See, the word Gentile means those without God. That's why it's crude. The court was called the court of nations because the expectation was that those who were of other nations, of other people, could come and encounter the living God, the one and true God, that there was a place for Him to be worshipped. There was a place for them to pray to Him and to come and to encounter Him. There was an expectation that they would come into that place and it was safe space. It was a place where they could encounter the living God. So the expectation would have been for Jew and Greek alike to treat that space as sacred space, to treat that place as holy ground. It's not that there was anything wrong with exchanging the money per se. It's not wrong to give people an opportunity to purchase an animal that is fit for worship. What is wholly inappropriate is to fill that space in such a way that those who were afar off from God could not come close. That you would literally by your actions shut out the nations and say, I don't care. I don't care about our commission as the light of the world. I don't care about our commission to be the hope for the nations. I don't care about the worship of God. What I want is for me and mine to be taken care of. That they would see that brick and mortar as their own personal space. To not care about those who are afar off. All around that space would have been indicators that this was the court of nations. I, I want you to kind of get your head around what that would have been like. I mean, it would have been like, I don't know, someone maybe having a t-shirt that says something like, love God, love people, and pass it on. And after having sported that in the mirror, to go out and to think that, as I speak good things about God and as I am kind to the people I like, 
that I would feel at the same time the freedom to shut people out of my life or out of the church. It would be like walking by a wall every Sunday morning and there'd be like maybe, I don't know, a whole wall that said, love God, love people, pass it on. And then as I stood there, I would spend my whole time talking to my friends and the people I know already and let other people who are far from God that are coming, wanting to know something about that and to ignore them because I was busy taking care of me and mine. Or maybe that we would even go so far as to think that the brick and mortar belongs to us and that what's most important is taking care of it. The temple, the Passover, all these things were pointing to this continual message of who God is. And the Psalm 69, John is building an understanding to us that we are supposed to be creating this place of a welcoming and that we're supposed to, that our passion for God, like not only spills over in terms of the songs that we sing, but even in the welcoming that we make, that, that we do not become the blockade for those who are far off because we want to honor God. We honor the commitments we make. We honor His call, His commission his great commandment and his great commission. And when we become consumed with the things that are make for convenient for us, comfort for us, and in the process exclude those who are afar off, our worship becomes less than honorable before God. Our offerings, our sacrifices become tainted by the lack of love for the very things that God loves, the very people whom He gave His Son for. You know, here's the thing. Chances are, after Jesus did this and he left the temple courtyard, or maybe even be before he left, everybody went right back to the same activity. When you read throughout the Old Testament, one of the things you see over and over again is the prophets, especially in the, you know, the minor prophets, but also in the major prophets. You know, like there's these things that they do, we call them prophetic actions. An example might be like, you know, taking and making a huge pile of human feces and then cooking their food over it and then eating it. Who wants to be a prophet? <laughs> Everybody wants to be a prophet when they think there's attention to be had. Nobody wants to be the prophet when there's dung-cooked meat to eat. What about when the prophet took old undergarments that were already frayed and he let them get nasty and filthy and laid on his side and for months on end and when people said, why is he laying there like that? He said, I want you to get a full picture, aroma vision of what your worship is like before God because you don't care about the nation's. Prophetic action. You know what happens when the prophets do things like that? 
People watch. People point and stare. People mock the prophet. And then they just go right back to doing the same things that they always do. That's how we treat prophets. The scriptures tell us over and over again, that's what happens to prophets. We watch, we mock, we go right back to the same activity. So chances are that right after Jesus did this, everybody went right back to the same thing. You know how I know that? Listen to the question that they ask. By what, what right, what sign do you have to indicate that you are, should be able to do this? Because they're thinking, like, you have no business to... Who are you, peasant, to tell us, the religious leaders, how to do church, man? Like, we're running this show, and what is your authority? But they don't ask him, what scripture... They don't ask by what indication or, or what history. What are these? No, they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. That's always their words, right? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Can I just kind of remind you, we missed this part maybe in John, but you pick it up in the other Gospels, that at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, when this takes place, he had already raised the dead multiplied food, cast out demons, healed the sick. Like, what else do you need? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. I'm not giving you any signs. Is it that Jesus is calloused and doesn't care? No, he's like, I've given you three years with the signs. You haven't listened yet. Like, do you really need more proof? No, you don't need more proof. You need to care. John indicates that he even did more signs during the festivities of the Passover and people were giving their lives and they are believing him, trusting him and all these things. Not the, not the religious leaders. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't change their attitude. Can I tell you that First and foremost, to every leader, like that is always a dangerous place to be in when you cannot hear from other people, when you cannot hear a critique, when nobody can ask you questions, you're in a really dangerous place spiritually. It didn't even have to be church stuff, right? I'd say at work, if you're the boss and nobody can ask you questions and nobody can challenge you, you're already in a dangerous place. It's called arrogance. It's unfitting for the people of God. But can I even say to you that, and I don't want to overstretch the passage, right? I don't want to, I don't want to say more than it says. But I do think there's like a, a real underlying warning to all of us who belong to God. When, we, when nobody can ask questions, when no one can challenge, like when our attitude becomes that, that we can't hear, we don't have any room, 
Or God forbid that we would do things that would literally shut out the nations, shut out the people who are far from God by winning arguments instead of winning people. By being satisfied with who we have. As long as me and mine are okay. Like the... When we look at this like holistically, right, it's, it's not just leaders who have problems with not listening. It's not just the, the, the people in the temple who have shut out the nations, right? Like the, this is a, a warning to God's people again and again. When we reduce our faith down to religion and to religious activities, and we get into the practice of just kind of going to church and doing the stuff, doing the things that we do that make us those people, and then we forget that like there's this whole mission of God. And what if we ignore the mission of God for taking care of our building, or we ignore the mission of God because my folks are here? What if we stop worrying about those who are afar off? What if we don't care? Can we honestly say that we have zeal and passion for the worship of God? If we sing songs passionately, but we have no heart for the lost? See, the indication is again and again that to honor God is not just singing of songs. In fact, I would say to you, if you're one of those people who doesn't really like you know, singing that much on a Sunday morning, and you know, like, I want you to stretch and to learn to do that, but you know, Really, in terms of church history, like the way we do music is not that old. Singing in four-part harmonies, stuff like that, you know, goes back to just Gregory the Great and, and, and a time period not that long. The early church, when they worshiped, when they were singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord, that what it's talking about is just simply that they would kind of canter to one another, they would kind of in a sing-songy way, read things to one another. And so if you're not, like, really into the music and stuff, I mean, like, I, you know, I think you're missing out. But worship is supposed to be the all of me, being in a place of honoring God. And so if all I do is sing a song on Sunday morning that talks about God's greatness... But then there's no place for the nations in my life, for the people. I can't possibly really be worshiping the great God, the great I am. What Jesus modeled was a passion for the real worship, for the real honor of God, for eternal life to be seen manifest. Do you know that eternal life and the glory of God go hand in hand? Jesus wanted to make sure that everyone who wanted to know God might be able to find their way to Him. He believed in that mission so much He gave His life for it. So how could we say that we're followers of Jesus And do any less. Right? 
That is the mission of Jesus. He went to the cross and rose from the dead to remove all the barriers, didn't he? And so knowing God and worshiping God go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. This is the way. So the worship of God is more than the songs we sing. In fact, in the Bible, we're told to worship God is to worship Him, to give honor to Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. That includes everything we let occupy our hearts, our, our, our feelings, our thoughts. It means also that we employ real brain power in the worship of God. Did you know that one of the most common rebukes in the Old Testament about not knowing God was the failure to use your mind to honor God. And with it came the, great, the most common critique of being carried away by one's feelings and not using one's mind. I, 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 as, as a charismatic person, that, that is a constant warning. Because sometimes we seem to value people being really emotional, and we don't seem to value using your brain. Can I tell you, not only is it a warning from Scripture, but it is a warning from history. That throughout history, the most pervasive and destructive times in history where people were encouraged to run away with their emotions and to stop thinking, when people of intelligence were, were dismissed as being dangerous, like, say, Mao, Hitler. It's a both and to honor God. We use all that's within us, heart, mind, and strength. That's my physical being. I, I pour my life's being into the worship of God so that we worship God with our whole selves, body, soul, and spirit, to know and to honor God and thus to make Him known to those around us. So maybe you're here today and you, you're like, you say, well, I, I struggle with the worship part, you know, and like I said, maybe you're one of those that you're not sure what to do with the music and things like that. Maybe, maybe it is a matter of like as you're going through life and expressing like who God is in your life, uh, giving witness or testimony to his goodness, his kindness, his nature, the, the overflow of what he's doing in your life. And maybe today what you would do in our time of prayers, you'd come get some prayer and say, I'm just really struggling with what it means to worship God. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I know how to do that well. I invite you to come get some prayer for that. Maybe it's the making him known part, right? Like maybe uh, there's this whole thing within you that you're like, you, 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 you're saying, well, you know, I'm an, I'm an introvert. You don't know how hard it is for me to share my faith. 
I can tell you that one of the most amazing evangelists I know is actually an introvert. I, I've literally been with him that in the space of a couple of hours watched multiple people come to Christ and like, I remember when the church fired him because he brought in too many of other types of people. He was a tremendous introvert, very quiet, had a lot of physical problems health-wise. Actually how he would get through the day is just by sharing his faith with other people. Maybe you're an extrovert and, you know, you're just kind of networking and stuff. You, just, you go, well, it's hard for me to share my faith because I'm, you know, I'm such an extrovert and I'm always meeting people, but, you know, I don't want to be weird or anything after I just, you know, got to know them. And so maybe you, like the Apostle Paul, would say something like, you know, I, Lord, I'm praying for boldness. Can you imagine that the Apostle Paul needed boldness? So maybe it would be okay for you also to pray God, give me boldness. I, I just don't know when to say it, what to say. I, I don't know the right moment. I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'll say the right thing, I, you know, but in the wrong way. I'm afraid I'll say the, it nicely, but I won't say what I need to say. And, and so I would say to you, maybe, maybe that's your prayer this morning. Maybe you would come get some prayer or you would ask someone to pray with you and say, you know, I, I just, this making him known part is so hard. I know that I should care about this. I, I do care about this on some level, but I'm also afraid. God, give me boldness. Or maybe, maybe you're not either one of those groups. Maybe, maybe you're here and you don't have your own relationship with the Lord. Maybe you've gone to church some, maybe you haven't. But in that moment, you would say, I, I, you know, I, I want to know God. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, I haven't tried this thing on enough. I'm not certain like where it's leading, what it's going to do for me. Should I do this or whatever else? And, you know, I'm not talking about praying a prayer to receive Jesus, something like that. I'm saying that you would simply come to, up to a prayer team member that would be up here in a little bit, and you would say, You know, what I want prayer for today is, God, I want to know if you're the real deal. Could we just, like, start there? God, would you show me who you are? I, if I invite you in my life, will you show me that you're real? That I matter? Like, you would just open the door just that little bit. I, I promise he will respond. I, I promise he will hear your heart. I promise he won't overrun you. But I also promise that he will meet you right where you're at. So let's stand together. And I'm just going to pray, and, um, and then we'll have some prayer team members come on up. Actually, one of these prayer team members, go ahead and come on up now, if you would, just... Coming up to the front, and um, so if you'd like some prayer this morning, you could come and pray with one of them, or you could pray with somebody next to you. Either way, 
Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and that he came to make the way. He offered to us not only eternal life in the sweet by and by, but in the present to engage this world, this life, this cosmos on his terms, to experience a quality of life that transcends existing. And Lord, we're desirous of that life to be not only made manifest, to be made evident in our own lives, but to spill over into the lives of our friends and family that it would be life to them. We want to be an example, but not only an example, we... Lord, we want to be whole. We want to know you. We want to honor you with our lives in the way that we treat one another, the way we treat our friends and family, and even the way we treat strangers. And so we're inviting you to make your presence known through us. And Lord, as we come to this place of prayer and a desire to honor you, I I pray that you would stir us from where we are to the place you want to take us. If it's in a moment of repentance, changing our heart and our minds, if it's simply inviting you to take us on a journey, it's asking us to show us who you are. I pray that you'd be with us right now. And then send us to engage the world around us on your terms. With grace, with mercy, with kindness. To bring honor to your name. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.